Tomorrow morning, God willing, I'm going to get on a plane around 9.25. I fully expect to arrive at the other end safe and sound. I have faith. Most of us do. I say most because all of us don't. My traveling companion doesn't share my convictions. <laughs> and you know all about that. The fact of the matter is we exhibit that kind of faith when we go to the doctors. Uh, we certainly trust ourselves to them. When we go for surgery, if we uh, ever have to. Uh, we have that kind of faith when we go to work every day because we believe in about two weeks' time or approximately half a month's time from now, there'll be a paycheck. And that paycheck will be approximately what it was the previous two weeks ago, at least until this year runs out. You know. There are many such examples of faith or trust in everyday life. And some Christians believe that biblical faith is along, kind of along the same line and they often use these kind of examples as a basis for exhortation for us to live faith-filled lives as Christians. But are they right? Is everyday faith the same as biblical faith or is it different? That's what we want to take a look at over the next eight weeks. For in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, that is the precise subject that is addressed. And so as we continue on the spiritual journey of faith that we began two weeks ago, we will be parking ourselves in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews for the next eight weeks. And as we do, you will begin to see and understand how incredibly relevant the subject of faith and properly understanding it is, and in what way is it similar and in what way is it different from everyday faith, which is what most of us exercise most of the time. <clears throat> now, I want to say something before I start. We're only going to look at four verses this morning. And of those four verses, I'm going to spend a good block of time on the first three. That's going to be the harder part to follow. I wrote and rewrote and rewrote the first three verses over and over and over again this week. As I struggle to grasp it in a way that I can communicate it to you. And then I discovered that God was not only teaching me what these verses meant by my studying. But what has happened in my life during these last four or five days as well. So kind of track with me. And uh, I, I trust that it will prove to be worthwhile for you. It begins in verse 1 by saying, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is one of those rare cases where the King James translation actually is more helpful than some of the modern translation. Oops. The King James says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That Greek word translated substance is a very interesting word in the original language and carries multiple shades of meaning. It meant, for example, that which is substantial or solid as opposed to that which may be ephemeral or hard to grasp or vaporous. It also meant foundation as opposed to the superstructure. So that the substance of the CN Tower would not be the 1800 feet above, but the hundreds of tons of concrete that are below the surface. It also meant confidence, the kind of confidence that allows us to act in certain circumstances. And it was also used to mean a title deed, like when we get the deed for a particular property. Because once we have the title deed... We can wheel and deal in property even if we've never put our eyes upon it. A lot of people make a whole living out of that kind of stuff. It makes unseen realities present and visible. Now when we look at these four meanings, we see a very rich definition of faith emerge, especially as it relates to hope. It's important for us to understand the difference between faith and hope. 
See, hope is what arises when somebody makes a promise of the future that looks good. So a baseball coach might say to a kid, Hey kid, you've got what it takes to be in the majors one day. And hope begins to rise in the heart of that kid. We use that language every day. You know. But that hope is not solid. There's no substance to it. Because there's no guarantees. Nor is there any stability. If that child happens to be an optimist, that hope will last a little bit longer. If that child happens to be a pessimist, the hope kind of disappears at the first sign that he or she is not going to make it on even their school team. Something like that happens when we fly, you know. First sign of turbulence, then Sham's hope begins to disappear. (laughs) There's no substance to hope by itself. No stability to it. Now, what if this child then begins to act on the basis of that hope? Drops out of school, takes all their hard-earned money that they've saved for university, and begins to buy expensive baseball equipment and engages coaches. And what's more, what if they start acting as if that future were a present reality and put up photographs of themselves in their room saying, second baseman for the Cardinals. Now, parents would be utterly horrified at that kind of behavior. Now, something similar happens when we read God's promises concerning the future, especially when we are in the context of suffering or difficulties, like many in our congregation are going through, physical or otherwise. We read God's promises and there's hope. But if all we had were the promises of God and all we had was hope, it would be about as vacillating as that kid's. Because hope would have no substance, no foundation, no stability, certainly no warrant for the certainty that will enable us to act at present. But faith adds all of those dimensions to hope. Faith makes hope solid. Faith gives enduring stability to hope. Faith builds a kind of confidence so that we can act today. And faith enables us to feel and to believe that those future promised realities are already in our hands. Now he builds upon that a little bit more clearly in the second half of that verse when he said, not only is it the found substance of things hoped for, it is the evidence of things not seen. We all understand what we mean by evidence. Evidence proves certain things. In fact, the meaning of the original word is proof. In what way is faith evidence? He amplifies that in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. This single verse is probably one of the most profoundest verses on what philosophers call epistemology, which is the science of knowing. How do we know what we know? Let me unpack that for you a little bit. He takes us all the way back, not just to the creation of the world, the word for universe, there is the word ages. Not just a static creation, but the universe as it is unfolding over time. The word for formed is a word that I'm told carpenters would use when they would join things very carefully. So what he has in mind here is not a static creation, but the entire universe in its dynamic passage through the times, wonderfully ordered together. He said that whole universe, he said, was formed... By God's commandment, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. 
Now, why did he introduce this all of a sudden? You've got to remember, evolution wasn't an issue in those days. This was 1,600 years before Darwin, long before that. Everybody believed God. Even the strangest religions had weird understandings of how the creation came, but everybody believed somebody created it. Certainly the Hebrew Christians did. His focus was not on evolution versus creation. His focus was on the second half. That what was seen was not made out of what was visible. The visible universe in all of its dynamic complexities and interrelatedness, he said, came out of that which was invisible. Now, what was the invisible that it came out of? There's only one other verse in the whole Bible that gives us a good clue to that. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since, same kind of language, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, there it is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. The same word understood in both texts. What it's saying there is that the visible universe in Romans is a clue to certain invisible things. (laughs) And the invisible things here he tells us are God's power and God's nature. If you want to generalize it as energy and spirit. And so going back to verse 3, what he's saying is by faith we understand that this dynamic universe was formed at God's commandment out of that which was invisible. And Romans tells us that which was invisible there were God's power and God's nature. Energy and spirit. Now of course in those days they couldn't understand what was that. Modern day physics helps us to see the connection between energy and spirit and matter. And how do we know this is true? We know this is true by God's word. It is by God's word that we know that through God's word, the invisible things of this world, God's power and God's nature, were the source out of this, of this entire visible, complex, dynamic universe. That's why he says by faith we understand. It is in this sense that faith itself is the evidence. Faith is a way of seeing. Just like these eyes are a way of seeing visible reality, faith is what perceives invisible reality. That's why he says, by faith we understand. It was the great Augustine, 5th century church theologian, 4th century theologian, who asked this question. He said, do I believe in order to understand or do I understand in order to believe? Two fundamentally different answers to epistemology. His answer was, no, I believe in order to understand, a clue to his greatness. You see, the natural way of living is that we understand in order to believe. That's what all those examples that I talked about earlier, everyday faith is not faith at all. The only reason I'm completely confident about getting into that plane tomorrow has nothing to do with faith. (laughs) It has to do with the fact that I know that pilots go for simulator training every six months. And if they don't pass it, they're not allowed to fly the plane. It is based on the fact that I know that as soon as the plane touches down or before it takes off, there's a swarm of mechanics who descend upon it and check everything out. If I didn't see those things happening, I wouldn't be getting on that plane. The reason we go to doctors is not because we have faith. I don't know about you, but the first thing I like to look at is where did he get his degree from? Or she did. Was it John Hopkins or Harvard or University of Toronto or or Podunk University in Timbuktu? If it's a ladder, you turn on and walk away. It has nothing to do with faith. It has everything to do with sight. Same thing when we submit ourselves to surgery. It's nothing to do with faith. We go because by far the majority of the people that we know in our lives who have gone for surgery have lived to tell us about it. We understand and therefore we believe and it's not faith at all. That's why everyday faith has nothing to do with biblical faith. Biblical faith is the exact opposite. We believe in order to see. 
Faith itself is a way of seeing and understanding. And because of that, it creates that kind of confidence within us. Now in verse 2, which we skipped over, we are told these words, this is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients were all the Old Testament saints that he's going to be talking about in Hebrews 11. We're going to look at a whole lot of them in the next eight weeks. By this he means this kind of faith. This kind of faith that gives substance to hope. That gives a foundation and stability to hope. That builds a kind of certainty so we can act upon it. That makes future promises present realities so it affects the way we feel. This is what the ancients were commended for. And you know the surprising thing when you look in the book of Hebrews, you will find that they're all verbs. <laughs> you will read this. By faith they understood, offered, walked, built, went, waited, blessed, hid, refused, chose, regarded, left, kept, persevered, passed through, marched, welcomed. They're all verbs. Faith is, this kind of faith is demonstrated by action. You know, we have this kind of idea that the person who goes around quoting all the promises of God is a great man or woman of faith. That doesn't, that's not true at all. All it shows is they are great men and women of memory. The man or the woman who is great in biblical faith is the one where verbs come out. as it is. That's why I said these eight weeks are incredibly practical. Because they have to do with doing. Faith, the biblical faith results in action. So when I put all of that together, here's the definition of faith. It's in your study guide, you don't need to copy down, understand. What is faith then? Biblical faith is that which makes the hope gendered by God's promises real. It grants that hope stability, so it remains with us. It builds confidence that the things promised in the future are present realities. And therefore, and therefore it leads to courageous and persevering obedience in visible reality, which we interpret by our increasing understanding of invisible reality. Let me repeat that for you again. Faith is that which makes the hope gendered by God's promises real. Grants that hope stability so it doesn't go up and down. It builds confidence that the things promised in the future are present realities. And all of those things taken together, it leads to courageous and persevering obedience in visible reality, which is where we live, which we interpret by our increasing understanding of invisible reality. Tracking with me so far? Now let me show you how God exegeted this verse in my life this week. Around Monday evening, I began to feel those familiar signs I know all too well. Every six, seven, eight months, I go through this. I get a little bit of a fever, and I get a cold, then I get a cough, and then it goes to my throat, and then I can't speak very well. This was not a good week for something like that. I had a funeral Wednesday morning, wedding rehearsal Thursday night, a wedding on Saturday, three sermons on Sunday, a five o'clock prayer meeting, and then believing God in the end. Did I have hope? I had hope all throughout. From the very beginning, I had hope. I had hope that God would give me the strength. I had hope. But I had faith. At least not consistently. The hope was there, but it was not substantial enough. The hope was there, but it wasn't stable enough. Sometimes it would go up, sometimes it would come down. And of course, all through this week, in believing God, because we start on Tuesdays with staff meeting, uh, the whole subject is on miracles. And every day I'm studying about God's power. Therefore, my actions were not always bold and courageous. They were in some areas, 
I didn't, I didn't uh, arrange for any backup preacher. I didn't tell Deb and Dwayne, hey, find somebody else to do the wedding. But I was anxious. The anxiety was still there. So you see, hope, and God was finally saying to me, don't worry, I'm teaching you what these verses mean in your own life. Do you see why hope is not enough? It is faith that gives substance to that hope. Now, if I had known on Tuesday what has actually transpired throughout the rehearsal, throughout the wedding, throughout last night's preaching and so far today, I haven't coughed once. If I had known that on Tuesday, if this, if this future had been a present reality, it would have made a difference, right? Now do you understand the difference between faith and hope? You can make the translation in your own life. Okay? This is it. Now, let's get into how this looks like in practice. For the next eight weeks, that's all we're going to do. What does this look like in practice in a whole variety of situations? Very first, ancient is Abel. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Just a little bit of background in case you don't know the story. You can find it in Genesis chapter 4. Abel and Cain were two sons of Adam and Eve. And they came one day to worship God. Uh, And they knew they had to make some offerings. So obviously there had been some instruction already given from God to Adam and Eve that passed on to Abel and Cain. Abel was a shepherd and so he brought um, an animal sacrifice. Cain was a farmer and he brought some produce of the land. God accepted Abel's sacrifice but not Cain's. Now the story raises some questions. Why? It sounds very unfair. I mean after all one profession is as good as another. Besides today in Irian Jaya many Christians all they offer is sweet potatoes. God certainly accepts that. So what was the problem? What was the problem with Abel and Cain? What's the difference? Hebrews 11 tells us that whatever else was involved one man's offering was an indication of his heart condition of this kind of faith in invisible realities revealed by God's word. Whereas the other man's offering was proceeded from visible reality, not according to God's word. There's some clues. We can't be that much we can be 100% certain of. But we can fill it out a little bit. If you read Genesis chapter 4, you will find that we are told that Cain brought some of the produce of the land, whereas Abel brought the fat portions of the first fruits. There is a clue there. First fruit, the very first animal. What would happen if I don't get a second born? See, there was some, he had to exercise faith in invisible reality. And he gave God the best. There's some indication that Cain didn't approach it that way. There's another clue which has a long history of interpretation, which personally I think makes a lot of sense in the context in fact, is the one that makes the most sense in the context. Is that more, in all likelihood this was a sin offering. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, we are told in Genesis 3 that God made them skins. It's highly unlikely that God created skins directly. What's most likely is that he killed an animal. So there's good reason to presume that they'd been given instruction on offerings and sin offerings. Now, I don't think Abel understood any better than Cain. <clears throat> but Abel said, God, God said, I've got to bring the first fruits. And so I'll bring it. Abel started from the word of God, even though he couldn't understand. And as a result of that, he understood. By faith, he understood. Cain started, on the other hand, from visible reality. What's the matter with my profession? 
He's a shepherd. He brings a sheep. I'm a farmer. I can bring my produce. Exactly the same, isn't it? Logic says it's exactly the same. Secondly, if I have to give a sheep, I've got to go to my brother and ask him for it. And I don't want to do that. We know how he felt about his brother because a few verses later, he just murders him. Now, I don't know whether this is exactly what happened, but something like this was probably involved. One man's offering started from invisible reality revealed by God's word, and so he grew in his understanding. Another man started by human reason from visible reality, refused to have faith, and did not grow in his understanding. One offering was acceptable, the other one wasn't. As I said, we can't be sure of the details. What we can be sure of is that Abel's faith was the kind of faith that we've just defined Cain's offering did not show that kind of faith. Okay. He then goes in verse 4 to say, And by faith he still speaks, or by his faith he still speaks even though he's dead. Abel is still speaking. What did he say to the Hebrew Christians to whom this was written? There the, the, uh, the worship issue is very clear because it's all about worship. And what the author has been saying to them is, forget about the visible worship. Visible animal sacrifices in visible tabernacles through visible priests with a visible, visible high priest having to go through a visible curtain that separated the visible presence of God from the visible presence of the people. Forget all of that and come to Jesus, the invisible high priest who is ministering in an invisible tabernacle, offering his invisible sacrifices, making the way into an invisible holy place, and invisible is better by far. That's the immediate application. It's all about worship. What does he say to you and me who are not particularly worshipping through visible reality? What is his message for you and for me? Because the first area in which we need to learn how this principle of faith that we have defined works out is in the area of worship. Which is happily the most important thing for us because Rexdale's mission statement is that we exist to make disciples of many peoples who will follow Jesus in authentic worship. There it is, over there on the wall. Which naturally raises the question, what is authentic worship? And Hebrews gives us one immediate answer. The study guide has many more questions to help you think through this. But the most obvious answer is authentic worship is worship that proceeds from the kind of heart that Abel had. It needs to be an expression of faith in invisible realities revealed by the word of God and not visible realities primarily controlled by our reason. So let's unpack that a little bit. And since we are following Jesus in authentic worship, let's start with what Jesus said about authentic worship. John 4.23 He was actually talking to a woman from another back, religious background and they were arguing about worship. She was arguing about worship. And all, the, all her arguments were external. Jesus said, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So according to Jesus, authentic worship is worship that is in spirit and in truth. So let's kind of uh, work our way through those two things right now. What is worship in truth? It means we have to worship God the way God told us we worship Him. If you read in the Old Testament, you are probably quite familiar with the prohibition that God repeatedly gave to Israel, don't worship the idols. What you may not be equally familiar with, that He also said, and don't worship me the way they worship the idols. You see, it's not only possible to worship the wrong God, it's possible to worship the right God in the wrong way. 
And so, worship in truth at heart means we must worship God the way God tells us we must be worshipped and not the way we think He should be worshipped, which is almost always from visible realities. How did He say we should worship Him? Well, let's look at the immediate context of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By the new and the living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Those phrases that I've underlined are dimensions of worshipping God the way God tells us to worship him. First of all, what does sprinkled hearts and washed bodies tell us? Hearts that need to be sprinkled from a guilty conscience tell us about the fact that we need to deal with sin when we come into the presence of God. That's why it says, seeing we have such a great high priest. The fundamental truth about authentic worship is that it is Christocentric. It is centered in Jesus Christ as our high priest because that's the only way we can approach God. And the first dominant truth, therefore, that we need to take in mind when we worship God, is that He is holy. And because God is holy, the very first thing we need to deal with when we are worshipping God is sin in our lives. Let me give you a personal example. For about 23 years, I had to kind of sit back. And the day is clear in my mind, the date wasn't. And I figured it was sometime in 1982 or 83. About 22, 23 years ago. I was, preach, we were pre, I was preaching through Ephesians at that time. And that Sunday morning, we didn't have Saturday services then. I was preaching on Ephesians chapter 6 and I remember just feeling quite empty at the end of the first service. I don't mean empty as drained and tired. I mean empty as, I didn't feel right. I just didn't feel like connected. I felt unsatisfied. But I was perplexed because I had studied like I always do. I had prayed and prepared my heart that morning like I always do in my study. So I was just kind of having it out with God. I remember that. And he took my mind to something that happened the previous night. Which I had dismissed as a trifle. It was Saturday night, I can't remember what it was, I was watching a game of some sort or whatever. And just before going to bed, I just kind of flipped the channels and I stopped longer than I should have at one channel. But because the duration was insignificant, it was just trivial, I turned the TV off and went home to bed, thought nothing of it. What God spoke to me that morning, He said, that's not trivial. You're getting up here and you're preaching my word, that is not trivial. So I had to deal with it. I had to confess it as sin. And you know, the 11 o'clock service was like night and day. Doesn't matter what it is. You cannot trifle with a God in His holiness. If you, you sin, you need to confess it. Now, he also talked about bodies being washed. What do washed bodies mean? In North American society, we don't understand that. Where I grew up in India, you took a, had a bath every day, but when we came home, you went straight to, uh, I, we were taught we went straight to the washroom and washed our feet, because feet got dirty all the time. So we didn't need a bath, we were defiled by dirt. That's the other thing that happens. We live in a society that sins with impunity. Most of you live and work in that kind of situation. And so even though there may be no sin in your own heart, you come with a sense of defilement by what we've heard, by what we've seen. And so, cleansing ourselves of that defilement is equally important. We have Jesus, our high priest, to be able to do that. Now the other side of the coin is we come in full assurance of faith. (laughs) What's faith here? 
Faith that our merciful and faithful high priest cleanses us of our sin when we confess it. Because you know what? If you don't do that, if you don't have that assurance of faith, even though you have dealt with it, somebody is going to be whispering in your ears throughout the whole worship service. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. God doesn't please, you're not pleased with you. You're sin. You're failed. You're a mistake. You're a failure. You need to know how to silence that voice. And that voice can be silenced because we have absolute assurance of faith through Jesus, our high priest, that when we are faithful to him, when we confess our sins, we, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there are at least some dimensions of coming to him in truth. Dealing with him as a holy God, and yet through Jesus Christ, dealing with him as a God who is merciful and who forgives us our sins. But there's another dimension of worshipping in truth. And that is this God is not only holy, he's a God who speaks. Author Eugene Peterson, remember during my first sabbatical in the class on worship, he said, he said there are four basic movements in worship. God calls, we gather, God speaks, we respond. God speaks. The first chapter in the Bible is God spoke by his word. The visible came out of the universe, the invisible, by the power of his word. And so worshipping God in truth means coming to listen to Him speak. We, we uh, know from our everyday language and our experience how, how we listen can be worship or profanity. We use words like we hang upon His every word. Some, many of you know the name Stephen Hawking. One of the, probably the most brilliant physicists alive. Now Hawking, because of his extreme illness, quadriplegic and whatnot, he, can, he can't speak. But because of the brilliance of his mind, they've rigged up a special computer and he can punch in very, very laboriously a few things and then the computer translates that into speech. Do you know he once gave a lecture not too long ago? But that's the speed at which he could speak. Painstakingly punching out a word at a time. How many people want to go and listen to a guy like that? The lecture hall was jammed. You know why the lecture hall was jammed? Because of the man who was uttering those words. The fact that they went there to listen to him tells them, tells everybody what they think of Stephen Hawking. How you listen when God's word, not me speaking, but how you listen when God's word is being proclaimed tells everybody what you think of God. That's why listening is worship. It also means that you come to listen to that word, believing that the word can do what it says it can do. The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect and restores our soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making simple people wise. The precepts of the Lord are right and bring joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant and enlighten the eyes. And that the word comes to quicken faith within our hearts so that our hope can have stability and solidity and certainty. That's what it means to come in faith when truth is involved. A couple of dimensions, there's probably a lot more, but those were the two that came to my mind. God is holy and God speaks. Now, how about the other side, in spirit? He must worship him in spirit as well. I think the simplest way to understand what Jesus meant when he talked about spirit to that woman was that in New Testament time, the whole issue of worship is internalized. Israel's worship was dominantly external. The most common complaint of God in the Old Testament was, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Proverbs 4.23 says, the heart is a wellspring of life. Guard your heart. In other words, the heart in scripture is, is that central fountain of who we are. It affects everything. 
Therefore, worshipping Him with our hearts means that the whole person involved. Worship is a whole person activity. It is an engaging activity that demands our attention. As opposed to, uh, oh, you know, I'm thinking about what happened last night or what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, this doesn't mean that we are perfect. My mind wanders just like yours does. But wholehearted worship means that when you find a wandering mind, you work hard to pull it back. You use what is in front of you to pull it back. And a couple of suggestions that I can give to you. If your mind is wandering to something that's good, start thanking God for it. If your mind is wandering to something that's not good, start praying about it. Both of them become worship right away. Let me talk a little bit more about this sincere heart. Not only are we to come in hearts sprinkled and bodies washed and full assurance of praise, we are drawn near with a sincere heart. The Greek word translated sincere literally means without masks or unhypocritical. That's also part of authenticity in worship. What does that look like? I mentioned to you last week in this service and the 9 o'clock service, two different individuals came to me. Both said, hey, at some point in the service we want to get up and just say amen. I said, why didn't you? And both of them said, well, what would other people think? May I just humbly and gently suggest that that's inauthenticity. Sincere worshippers, sincere hearts, will not work to suppress something that God himself is doing. Now, it's quite possible, it's equally possible, that we can draw attention to ourselves by those kinds of things. Then it's not worship anymore. Then this nine o'clock congregation will remember that gentleman who used to come here before, an older man. And he was quite loud in his expostulations. And we decided to do nothing for a while, just to give him the benefit of the doubt that was coming out of a sincere heart. But finally it got to the point where it was interfering with other people's worship. And also when we started speaking to him, his reactions began to tell me that this was not authentic. And then somebody up from the, uh, up the balcony came to me and said, do you know that sometimes after he says these things, he looks around to see who's watching. And right away, that was the tip off. We got one of our elders involved and God took care of the matter after that. He's never come back. So a sincere heart will neither draw deliberate attention to itself, nor will it work to suppress what God is doing. It just wouldn't care about Focus on self. That's the issue. It works in other areas. It works in the whole issue of body postures. And what do we do with our bodies? Whether it's raising our hands, whether it's coming to the front like some of you did, whether it's kneeling like John Vandersloot used to do. Some of you remember him. Just kneel right, right the fifth or sixth seat. Right the, oh, he would just kneel all of a sudden and start praying. It needs to be authentic. Uh, all I can do is to give you my own experience at this point. I only know my heart. I don't know yours. Also because I'm standing here. I don't know which ones of you, how you worship during most of the time. I can't tell how most of you are listening, but I can't tell how most of you uh, do the other kinds of worship. I don't lift up my hands because I like to do it or it's a nice thing to do. Nor do I keep my hands like and saying I'm never going to do it because the worship leader is telling me to do it. You know? I just find that when I'm singing or something's happening and some truth about God or my heart or whatever just grips me so that I would normally, normally do something like, yes, God, affirm it or say, give it to me. I want it or here, take it. That's when I find my hands going up. It is in response to what's going inside. And they come down for the same reason. When that inner, inner impulse stops, I put my hands down. That's how it needs to be with you. I remember a guy who used to, uh, Mike Wilkins, my good friend of mine, one time he was telling me, oh, so-and-so is leading worship, and he's just absolutely uh, lost in worship. Now, I happened to see this guy at the time. I said, him? 
All he does is close his eyes. He said, if you knew him, that would be ecstatic for him. You know. <laughs> the fact is, what is ecstasy varies from person to person. That's not the point. But it has to be authentic. And uh, Sham and I have had a long-standing discussion, let's say. Not an argument, just a discussion on, on one particular issue. She'll often say to me, honey, when you get up there and just start to preach for the first time, you need to smile at the people. Tell them they are your people, you know. Well, she can smile like that, you know. And, but you know what? I, you know I love this congregate. You know I'd rather be here than anywhere else. But I don't think you really want me to come up every morning and do something like this. You know? Right? <laughs> Because that's probably how I would feel. So what I'd say to her is, how I feel when I come up there is entirely dependent on what's happened the last few minutes before. You know me, some days I come here and I can't even speak for about one minute. Other times I've given you an impromptu sermon before I started the real sermon. And sometimes I almost smile. (laughs) But you get the point. That's what sincerity is all about. How about sincerity when it comes to singing? Because we're going to be singing, we're going to be responding in a few moments. What does it mean to sing with a sincere heart? What, take, take a song like, Jesus, I believe in you and I would go to the ends of the earth. Will you? If you will, you can sing it. How can you be sincere and still sing it if you're not ready to do that? As most of us probably are, if we are truthful. Well, I'll give you at least three suggestions. i use all of them. You can either confess the sin in your heart or whatever it is that keeps you, not sin, whatever keeps you from being willing to go to the ends of the earth. You can pray for God to so capture your heart with His glory that you would be willing to do that. Or you could thank God for all the people in our congregation like Karen Dick who've given up on their PhDs for the moment and have gone off to Africa. Any one of those would be sincere engagement with that. Just don't say it if you don't mean it, that's all. That's one dimension of engaging sincerely when it comes to the, uh, with the songs. Same thing with the attributes of God. Whether it's a scripture that's being read, whether it's something that's enacted, whether it's the words of a song. If that attribute of God is not something that's engaging you at this moment, you can do the same thing again. Ask God to open His eyes. Open your eyes that you might respond to Him. Or if it is something that is touching your heart, you can respond. Both expressing satisfaction in God's greatness or lamenting the lack of it and asking Him to open your eyes are both worship, and they are both sincere, and they are both authentic. Just don't tune him out at that point. That's neglecting God. And what if you don't want to sing at all? Can I suggest you do something? Do what the psalmist said. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make music in my heart. Just do it. But when you do it with that kind of determination, it becomes authentic. And who knows that by the time you get out there, your heart will be completely transformed. Okay? Now it's time for us to do it. For my benediction, I was just uh, struck afresh, probably the first time, by those verses in Hebrews 11, 4, it says, And Abel, though he's dead, still speaks. Depending on your particular theology, he's been dead either 6,000 or 40,000 years. Somewhere in that group. Either way, it's pretty impressive. It struck me that when that man decided to make that simple offering, did he have any idea? Did he have any idea that in Rexdale Alliance Church, several thousand years later, we'd be learning from him? You know what that struck me with? You never know 
the repercussions through space and time of the simplest act of obedience if it comes from faith. And I want to point out to you a particular group of people. This is the fifth weekend in this month and whenever we have a fifth weekend we, we need some worship team people to do it double and triple duty. Uh, usually we gather people who are just volunteering for the group who have already done other services during that month and they need to do all three. So I want to particularly bless this team here. I want to thank you. And I just overheard Leanne say she forgot about the time change and got up at 4.30 this morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I just want to bless you that this act of obedience and faith that you have offered to us by at such short notice, I didn't do that. May God grant you the grace to believe that, that the uh, blessing from that will flow and keep on flowing for a long, long time to come. And for all of the rest of you, that the next specific opportunity to obey God in faith, when that comes before you, may the Holy Spirit of God remind you of the credible significance of that act of obedience. And may you therefore obey joyfully and in faith. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.